Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Brew Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the Riptide. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com. Brewers, it's time for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Howdy, hey, my brewing brothers and sisters. I'm Jamel Zanishef, and you're listening to Brew Strong. With me today is my dear friend and uh, award-winning home brewer, awesome traveling companion, uh, Travis Conville, out in uh, Houston, Houston, Texas. Thanks for having me, Jamel. Happy yeah, to be here. How you doing today, brother? Doing all right. It's, uh, the weather is, uh, it's, it's nice weather right now, believe it or not, you know, which is rare around these parts. It's nice weather here too, which is really odd because it's been it's been just pouring rain on stuff. Heard about that? Got like sixty feet of snow in in this Sierra. <laughs> do, you, do you get snow every year? Like any snow? Up in the mountains, we do. Sure, this sure. year, there was a point where they the weather service like two weeks ahead of time said. Everyone in California will be able to see snow no matter where they're at. Which is like, well, that's weird. Yeah. They were right. Wow. There was snow on every little hill anywhere. It was uh, pretty fascinating. I had not uh, not seen that kind of snow before. I'd, I'd seen snow, you know, a couple of times in the in the lowlands, in the flatlands. But um, yeah. Snow is always pretty at first. And it kind of goes south. Yeah. And then you get tired of it. Is <laughs> that? Yeah. Yes. Oh, let's see. I'm just. <laughs> God, all, the, all the technology here. I'm an old man. I, so I got to use the Facebook. I've got to use the Zoom. I've got to use, uh, you know, the Internet, the interwebs. It's difficult. You got it all lined up. But, it seems to be working. You know, which old man is very clever and capable of amazing technological feats? Like that nickname? <laughs> My good friend, John Blickman. John Blickman, he is uh, one clever dude, and uh, he uses that uh, clever brain of his to make some amazing brewing equipment. So if you're in the market for anything from a basic, you know, uh, just no frills, but, you know, solid quality, you know, brew kit, the Anvil series, 
he's got you got you there if you got you know you like to do i know you you like you like some technology in your in your brewing and you like some some high-end stuff with uh lots of the things that make your brew day easier and he's got that too in his blickman uh, series and then he's even got commercial grade brewing equipment if you want to start a small brewery commercial brewery he's got that i think you know 10 barrel systems uh the 10 barrel systems he's got and uh you know guy is a clever dude makes some great stuff and he has been a friend of the show for a long time pretty much since the beginning over 15 years he's been paying for the show so you don't have to so if you don't mind Send him a nice email, feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com. Tell him how much you appreciate that he pays for the show so you don't have to. And uh, John does appreciate it, so please, please do. Today, we're going to do Q&A. If you uh, send in questions to Strong at TheBrewingNetwork.com, that's where uh, all these questions are coming from today, unless you're listening live. And then you can actually uh, ask a question in the chat live on Facebook and uh should I be able to find that? Or maybe TC could find that. <laughs> I have to put on the side. Yeah, there you go. You can see if there's uh, questions that come in. We have three people watching and I can't believe they haven't answered, asked a question yet. <laughs> right. Like, what the hell is this? I just stumbled upon this by random, <laughs> by random chance. All right. Well, let's jump right into it. I got a, a question from Chris B in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. He says, dudes. Where's John? I'm not hating the shows without him. I'm just hoping he's all right. We'll be on again soon. Well, I guess you hadn't heard. Well, it really hasn't been on social media at all. They kept it pretty quiet. But uh, John was in uh, Nepal for uh, wingsuit flying. He's quite the extreme sports enthusiast. He was wingsuit flying off a cliff in Nepal. I don't know exactly where. But uh, I guess, you know, towards the end, they opened the parachute for their landing. I guess uh, either it was too late or there was a problem with the parachute and man, right into the rocks. And, you know, you know, they have uh, one death in every 500 jumps in a wingsuit flying. So luckily, you know, John is quite a stout individual. And so uh, I think, you know, he's got enough padding. So when he hit the rocks from you know a few hundred feet in the air you know he just kind of bounced and uh, he was okay protected his organs you know he's quite a beefy individual so uh that's what happened and that's why he hasn't been on the show for a while because you know it just he's in this hospital in nepal and you know uh our our, our... <laughs> anybody believe in this no uh... you could have warned me you could have warned me i can't keep a straight face <laughs> No, he's fine. He's uh, been real busy with uh, the NBAA stuff that he's doing, helping them with the, uh, you know, the materials and all that. And I don't know exactly what he does, but he's been doing that. So he's just, uh, you know, just doesn't have the the, the uh, bandwidth available right now. I'm sure he'll be, you know, back on to do some shows with us in the future. But right now, he can't do he can't do the regular thing. So that's all right. You still get me, and you get. You know, Great folks like TC here, so. I get John sloppy seconds. <laughs> Maybe that's what they called him when he hit the ground. You know, a lot of juice probably came out of him. A lot of beer probably came out of him. <clears throat> we call him Sloppy John. <laughs> no? Rock Candy, best nickname ever. Let's stick to that one. <laughs> Rock Candy. <laughs> 
a rock can to hit the rocks. So there you go. There's there's your answer, Chris. Uh, thanks for your your concern. Uh, but uh, John is fine. Everything is normal. He's okay. I am just having a bit of fun. As we double check and I make sure Chris didn't ask that in 2015. <laughs> hey, hey, he asked that in 2023. Was that this year? March March 1st. Huh? Look at that. I'm on, I'm on top wow. of these things now. Wow. It's impressive. Speaking of which, got one from Bill in Buffalo, New York, back July 22nd, 2014. <laughs> Hope Bill hasn't been waiting uh, on the answer before he, he brewed because that would be that'd be a little while. But Bill was asking about starting mash temps. Bill says, so what up, guys? I plan on stepping up into all grain brewing in the near future. I want to have a little more control over my mash temperature. So I decided that I will build a small rim system from some do-it-yourself projects I have found. I know typically when using a cooler as a mash tun, you heat up your water well above your main temperature or your mash temperature, then count on temperature drops from the cooler itself and the grains going in it to reach your desired mash temperature. My question has to do with using a rims. Do I still heat my water above the desired mash temperature and allow the grains to drop the temperature back down? Or should I start at my desired mash temp, add the grains, and then allow the rims to pick the temperature back up to the desired mash temperature? Or do I just relax and do whatever is comfortable as the starting temperatures will not affect the mash one way or another? Thank you, Bill. What do you say? I had a few thoughts. Uh, I figured I could throw them out there and you could tell me how stupid I was and, and say what's right. Um, I, within reason, I would target just a little bit low because what he has is he has more heating control than cooling control, right? I mean, mm. technically with the rims, you could cool, but that's not likely how he's set up. So I'd target a couple of degrees low and bring it up, but only a couple, I'm thinking. Mm. So you deviate too much and you're in a, a whole different zone of mashing, right? Right, right. No, that that's, my thoughts. That's, that's actually uh, very insightful. I'll hang it up and see you in the pub later. Right, right. Because uh, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. You know, generally you go with a higher temperature. You know, just do room temperature water, throw it in there, and you know, uh, bring it up with rims. But like uh, Travis is saying, you go with a, a, a hotter temperature water than than what your desired mash temperature is. The, the grains, the the temperature of the grains and the temperature in your cooler or whatever will bring that tem temperature down. But it's better to err on the side of being a, a little bit too low than a little bit too high. In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't make that much of a difference. You know, if you're a couple degrees off one way or another, eh, it's not the end of the world. It'd be fine. But um, yeah, if you really want to hit your numbers and, you know, to do good repetitive brewing, you want to be able to hit every number exactly the same every time you know uh to be able to replicate beers and, and make adjustments so you know you know try and you know uh bill once you once you brewed on that system in the past nine years you've been brewing yeah. the system. 
Yeah. You've probably noticed that it's kind of predictable what, you know, how many degrees over you need to be in order to hit it, hit it. And since the amount of water is as long as you vary the amount of water with the that with the amount of grain and that's consistent and your temperature is consistent where you store your grain is about the same temperature because the temperature of the grain, let's say it's in the winter and you're brewing and, and it's sitting in the garage could be quite cold you add that to the water that'll draw it down versus you know the height of summer where the grain is is you know quite a bit warmer you know uh you could have a 20 degree difference in the temperature of your grains that you're adding to this water and that will pull down the temperature even more so it's a little bit of a a, a guessing game but yeah i think in the in the grand scheme of things it's not the end of the world if you uh end up uh, you know, off, off by a bit, but like TC saying, if you're a little bit low, it's easier to, to go up than, than to go down, uh, on a, on a rim system. Just think if we had him on to tell us how wrong or right we were over his last eight years or <laughs> nine years of, of brewing. There you go. <laughs> All right, let's do this. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll have more of your questions right after this. Are you looking for a simple brewing system that's great for all grain brewing, but everything on the market seems to be full of compromises? Blickman Engineering has the answer. The Blickman Brew Easy All Grain Brewing System. The Brew Easy is a complete system with easy upgrades and a beautiful compact design, perfect for any size brewing location. At its core, the Brew Easy is built on two gorgeous Blickman Boilermaker brew kettles, a high temperature March pump, and either a top tier gas burner or the new boil coil electric heater. The Brew Easy adapter lid allows the pots to stack on top of each other, forming an efficient, strong, and compact brewing setup that comes in 5, 10, and 20-gallon batch sizes. Upgrade your BrewEasy system with full automated control by adding a Blickman Tower of Power temp controller and make moving around easy with the Blickman Kettle Cart. The BrewEasy is modular. If you already own a Boilermaker kettle, you can build your BrewEasy by purchasing just the modules you need. The new BrewEasy all-grain brewing system. See it today at BlickmanEngineering.com and brew with Blickman quality on your new BrewEasy. Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. With my good friend uh, Travis Conwell, we are uh, answering your questions from uh, you know decades ago or recently. Just depends, you know, how the question hits me. <laughs> you know, I'm like, well, that's an easy one to answer. Might as well knock that one out. That seems. I, I appreciate that. You brought the softballs for me. I, I, <laughs> I saw it and I appreciate it. I'll always give you the softballs. Yes, smooth ones too. <laughs> All right. Let's see here. Chris asks, he's talking about, there's a website called The Straight Dope, and they have a thing called, uh, a post there that says, do microwave ovens kill bacteria? He says, uh, some straight dope research I thought you guys and the listeners might be interested in. They swab some pizza at delivery at four hours old, after 30 seconds, and after 30 seconds in the nuker, they hypothesized nuking for two minutes would be sufficient. I thought, it would be good information for anyone that doesn't have an autoclave, or is it wrong? 
and he gives a link to uh, the straightdope.com site. You could search for that and do microwave ovens kill bacteria. And and the, the, the fact is microwave ovens can kill bacteria. Microwaves can kill bacteria, but it's it's really the heat that is, is going to do a, a thorough job, right? So if you have water and it's got bacteria in it and you nuke it for 30 seconds and it's boiling, uh, you may have killed uh, the bacteria. If it's just gets warm, you haven't killed the bacteria. So I'm sure if you could put an individual bacteria cell <laughs> and, uh, you know, stream microwaves at it, you you could kill it. But that doesn't seem very efficient. And what was interesting, I read the thing on the pizza. The interesting thing is they swab the pizza. Uh uh, And you read it too, right? Yes. (laughs) They swab the pizza fresh from delivery and there's bacteria on it. So that tells you one of two things. Right. Either, Either even the pizza oven couldn't kill the bacteria or they just don't handle it so well after they cook it. Right. It might tell you both. It might tell you both. So, you know, if your pizza oven's not just destroying your bacteria, I'm not sure if you can really trust a, a microwave to do it either. Well, now, most pizza ovens, uh, the traditional brick ovens with the stone in them, they um, will, they run those about 550 degrees. So that should be able to kill the the, the bacteria. It, it's in there until it gets where it melts the cheese, everything else. I mean, it depends on where the bacteria is. It could be nestled underneath some, you know, pepperoni or something. Maybe doesn't get as hot. I think generally, generally, it gets the the pizzas get quite hot, and I think that that could do it. They they should be over boiling temperatures, so they're probably they're probably getting at least to 250, 300 by the time they're cooked. I would think that that could do it because that's a wet heat, mm-hmm. uh, which is more effective uh, than a dry heat. And they slap it in this box that's been sitting around with the flour. The box, stuff. right? Some some guy was folding these boxes. Who knows? And then also, when you bring it out, it sits there on the counter for a moment or two. You got to let the pizza cool down before you cut it. I used to work in pizza. <laughs> you have to like cool down before you cut it. Otherwise, the cheese just melts off into the into the cuts, and you end up with a mess. So yeah. you let it you let it cool out. But when you do, it's exposed to the air, bacteria, wild yeast, people talking, and the spit flying is all landing on the pizza. And then it's not hot enough to kill everything. Right. So, and then it goes in the box. And yeah, you never know. The driver, you know, picked his nose and fingered your pizza. You know, uh, who, who knows? I, let me think back to all the things I did to pizza oh, when I was no. delivering. No. <laughs> That's a separate show, Jamil. I never, I never did anything to any pizza. Although there was a time when I ate a a slice of a pizza. Uh, so if you here's here's a tip to you: if if you ever get a pizza and there's an odd number of slices there, uh, driver ate a ate a slice. So you rearranged it to look like it was full. Stretch yeah, the cheese yeah, out. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. You just you just kind of. <laughs> You know, they were it, this this pizza was cut into a lot of really thin slices. Oh, so it, it, it was hardly anything. I was starving, uh, you know, anyways. So anyways, there's bacteria on that pizza you just got delivered. But there's a lot of bacteria. Most of it 
that we end up consuming is is fairly harmless so our bodies are able to fight it and you know they they say like two minutes probably would have been sufficient but but at two minutes you can't eat the pizza it's you know right. just totally crispy to to petrified um so it, it works for for some things but it's definitely not an autoclave so autoclave uses pressure and temperature and uh through the pressure and temperature achieves a sterile environment so the home autoclaves that we use we use them wet and at 15 psi it's about 250 degrees fahrenheit you do 250 degrees fahrenheit wet for 23 minutes i think it is and uh that is sterile so you know microwave for two minutes isn't going to cut it and I, I suppose it's better than nothing but I would not count on it. I use a microwave to, to clean, kind of not quite. Well, you can call it sanitize some of my lesser containers that I do things with that it's not as critical, mm -hmm. you know, where they're stained and should probably be trash anyway, but I'll put them in the microwave on a little simmer thing. With a little, little simmer water for about three, Yeah, mm -hmm. right. But I don't use that for yeast that I want to re-bitch. I use that for, you know, like a... a, a a forced uh forced fermentation where oh mm -hmm. it's not perfect i'm not drinking it for sure anyway right right you don't want to drink your forced fermentations but yeah it's it's something but it's it's not like the the pressure cooker method not that i've played it out in check for bacteria personally but i bet you have at least once mm -hmm. you'd be shocked at how durable yeast and bacteria are i mean they didn't get this far with being being delicate you know, mainly they, they survived by numbers, but even then you'd, you'd be surprised. I was saying, uh, I had told this story already. Uh, I brought some yeast back from England and I needed some, some work to, uh, get it going. And, uh, I asked Andrew at, at the heretic, I was like, Hey, you know, they were doing a small batch on their pilot system. And I said, Hey, fill me up a couple of mason jars with, you know, once, once you get to, once you've been boiling for about 15 minutes, I said, fill me up a couple of mason jars so I can use it for this. And instead of waiting for, for, to be boiling for 15 minutes, he just, he goes, well, it got, it got quite, you know, hot. It got up to like 190. And then he filled it from that, that I have one jar that I used. And then the other jar I kept sealed. I didn't open it anything and it fermented in the jar like a big layer of yeast on the bottom so who knows who knows what it was that defeats every bit of internet lore anybody has ever mentioned mm -hmm. you know ah, i just get it over 160 is fine and here you had 190 that fermented in the jar right you know he was thinking oh it's probably the the mason jar was the lid well you know the the moment he handed it to me hot um, i turned it upside down you know, to right. heat the lid. So I thought it'd be okay, but no, there's there's just too much stuff crawling around on grain. You know, it could could have been botulism. Who knows? Who oh, knows? But who knows? All right. So yeah, microwave, maybe, maybe not. Okay. Uh Ben asks, Hey Ben, I'm going to be spending a week in the UK in December. And he sent it in November. I mean can't really help you, you know, not that quick. Of course, it was November 2015. 
So apologize for being a little little uh, late on the response here, Ben. But maybe this helps out other people. I'm going to be spending a week in the UK in December. I wonder if you had a list of must-visit pubs and or breweries. Thanks, Ben in Seattle. What would you what would you suggest? I'm going to go out on a limb and say Uma Feathers should be on his list. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harvest Tide House. Yep, yep. Then uh, they're near uh, Greenwich. Yep. Uma Feathers. They have a, usually what I tell people is. I'm not a travel agent, (laughs) you know, you can Google this. And that's generally what I tell people is, I mean, the way I find pubs anywhere I go is I Google it and see what comes up, you know, pubs or breweries. And then I look at the, you know, the ratings and see which ones, you know, do, do well. And as far as pubs, there is, there are a couple of, great lists of historic pubs and what i have googled in the past is historic pubs in london and it gives you a list of all the historic pubs how old they are from the oldest you know and it gives you little descriptions of them it gives you walking tours and i would just use one of those if you haven't been before there's so many great pubs there that absolutely you know it's hard to you know to say one way or another i would make sure to Hit a Harvey's pub and get get yourself some uh, Sussex uh, Best Bitter. I think is one of the greatest beers in the world, and you should definitely have some if you're over there. Interest in in British beer. So, yeah, really, if, you know, if if you know what you want to see in 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 London, mm-hmm. find out how close it is to where you're going to be, and if you just want to see good stuff, just start walking. It's a great town. Yeah. So many good pubs. I mean, have we ever walked into a bad pub in, in, in London? Paris is a different discussion. <laughs> well, I will say there is a a Young's pub, the Cheshire Cheese. <laughs> Interesting name. <laughs> the Cheshire Cheese. What is it? Let's go there with Neil. Yeah, Cheshire, ye old Cheshire cheese. I think it is. It's an amazing building. But when I was in there, I've been been in a couple of times, and the beer coming out of the cask on the hand pump, sour chunks of chunks of stuff coming out, buttery. Uh, it was terrible. They don't and, call them cheese for nothing. And they, yeah, and they. They did not care at all. The people serving it did not care. Wow. That's the most surprising part. Yep. Wow. Uh, you know, everywhere else you go, they tend to at least, you know, care a little bit. These folks didn't hardly care at all. And uh, I was shocked. And I've been there a couple of times, like I said, and my opinion hasn't changed. <laughs> it's mainly a tourist place, you know, I think. And I'm just kind of shocked that they do that and then um where else was i i went to a place it was out God, boy i'm trying to think of what brewery it was but there were so many fruit flies mm. swarming all over every faucet just yeah yeah i got a beer poured set at the bar and just a crowd of fruit flies on my glass i was like oh my god 
trying to remember if you told me that story if I was with you. I, I was by myself at this one. Okay. okay. It was um I I could look it up where I was and I could I could find, figure out which one it was, but it was it was disgusting. So you'll find those from time to time, but in general, I, I think, you know, especially the knowledgeable British beer drinker is not shy about telling the publican that you know something is bad. You know, they'll be like, hey, this is crap. You know, what are you doing pouring this? <laughs> you know, they, you know, uh, uh, polite people, but they will, uh, you know, point out when when something as precious as their uh, ale is is off, they will they will point it out. Patrick in the chat has a question for us. Yeah. Do you find old ales much in the UK? Old ales, the style of beer? Or... Yeah, I believe, I believe that's what he means. He did not put an E at the end. He didn't say old ales, <laughs> but I'm, I imagine in Patrick can come back in because he's listening live, I, am, I assume. Yeah, um, yeah. Not, not that often, but you do. I think, you know, some of the traditional breweries are still making them. They range, you know, considerably in, in character. You know, if you look at something like Theakston's uh, Old Peculiar, you know, that be considered an old ale. There was uh, Green King used to make their their old stock ale or whatever it was, which was a blend of kind of like a like a pale ale and uh, like a soured ale or something or a, a stock ale and a soured ale or barrel aged ale. But on average, it seems that the pubs usually did not necessarily carry an old ale. I think we went to a Beakston's Tide House that had that old peculiar. Yeah, it seems uh, yeah. not as common as just, I mean, just, okay, they've got four different bitters from four different breweries or. Right, right. The, yeah. the thing that keeps most places from serving them is that the alcohol level is much higher. And so it ends up being far more expensive, more expensive than, uh, you know, a, a bitter or a mild. So that kind of puts a, you know, puts a damper on on sales yeah. for it. And then in the past, you know, the consumer wasn't that keen on high ABV beers there in England. But, you know, with the kind of modernization of craft there with all the, the craft brewers doing a lot of American styles and Belgian styles, the ABV of, of the beers for offer have gone up. And so I think you do tend to find maybe more and more people drinking higher ABV beers. In the past, it was difficult to find anything, you know, beyond five, five and a half percent. Nobody served anything past six or higher, I think, back in, you know, back in the day. Now you see it fairly frequently. So, and then my friend, uh, uh, our friend, Henry Kirk, former uh, head brewer at Dark Star, former brewer at, uh, at Fuller's, since Asahi closed Dark Star. I, I went out there with uh, our buddy, our mutual buddy, Neil Spake, and we we helped brew the Gales Prize Old Ale, this last uh, brew here at Dark Star. And that is an old ale that's over 9%. And that, I would say, is you know much more classic old ale with kind of some of the funk and, you know, uh, a lot of great uh, character from the, the uh, sugars and stuff like that. So you'll, you'll see that, and that got all bought up 
in a heartbeat. So you won't see that out there, but you'll see some. It has to be bittersweet that you got to brew at Dark Star, and that was the last time. Mm-hmm. Hey. And, and that's, uh, you, you're talking about the other one that was an Old Ale Stock Gale, uh, the blend. That Gale's Prize Old Ale is uh, Solera style. Yes. A little bit of a blend. Yeah. Yes. That's very cool. Right. So the organisms that were there when King George was was around 100 years ago when they started brewing it um was carried forward in the barrels because they would age it in these wooden barrels for for like a year or whatever and then and then they take it out and package it and so the microorganisms were living in that wood and then when gales got uh, purchased by fuller's john keeling he realized the the preciousness of that and how all, all that wood stuff was going away and all the Gales stuff was going away. So he actually went to Gales before it all got closed down, brewed a batch on the Gales and I, uh, on the Gales thing, or they brewed it and trucked it. I don't know. Anyways, he got it into the wood and then that's been carried forward ever since then. They've kept back about half the beer from a batch in stainless. And then the organisms are still alive in there. And then when they brew a new batch, they blend it with that and keep the thing going like Solera, like you're saying. And so those those organisms are still alive in there, still 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 kicking. So in this bottle, you have uh, organisms that were you know have a ancestry back to to King George. It was kind of cool. Hadn't killed anyone anyone yet. I'm not afraid of it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's all it's all it's all safe. <laughs> So what do you suppose they did with the the half held back after they killed off darts? It got uh, uh, trucked back over to Fuller's. It's back at Fuller's. Does the side did they did the side buy Fuller's and the whole thing? Oh yeah, yeah. They okay, so the beer still exists. They just just said buy Dark Star. We're going to hang on to this over there, and right. who knows what the future of any of that is. Well, they also they also own Meantime, so they said they were going to brew it next at Meantime because Henry made it quite the commercial success. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he has so many friends, because he's such a wonderful person, that everybody's supportive of Henry. And that's, that's a good sign. I was afraid it was just dead. That's great. Right. I mean, I'd, well, I'd love for that to move forward. Yeah, they, uh, you know, like I said, it's impossible to get a bottle. Everybody snapped them up, you know, the moment they came out. They It turned out delicious. And they actually had it on cask at, uh, what's the name of the little play? <laughs> I keep keep going with the princess dance around the cherry tree bar it became a fuller's place and they had they had it on and i went in and nine over nine percent i'm like you know i'm like do you would you do a half pint he's like oh you don't want a full pint nine percent and i almost went ahead and just did the full pint nine percent uh-huh. uh-huh. what kind of an american i am but yeah. uh yeah it was it was fantastic so i haven't had any out of the bottles yet Oh, so you're hanging on to your bottles too. Yes. Yeah. But uh I will I will be cracking one open here fairly soon. We'll see. I've got the one. That's how much love I have. I just got the one. Yes. So uh hey, you got I, I one. Know, I know I don't know when I'm gonna open it because it is uh you know very exclusive. But um yes. I did I did send a couple to Neil, but well he was there. Exactly. I knew you yeah. would understand. He was there. 
So yeah, yeah. He, he, he put the effort into, into going there. He, he deserved to have more than one. Absolutely. So, and I would share mine with him if he showed up. Mm-hmm. Neil, if he showed up, you know. Yeah, I don't think he's open to any because he's like, <laughs> well, I don't want to waste it. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, unless there's, you know, five people to share it with. I'm like, nah, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to drink a whole 500 mil bottle myself. I'm probably going to have to call you one night and crack mine open, you know? Anyway. There you go. <laughs> there you go. All right. Let me tell you about our good friends uh, at uh, Brew Chatter. They're out in uh, Sparks, Nevada, right next to Reno. Uh, brewchatter.com is the name of the website. And it is a fantastic homebrew shop where all the ingredients are fresh. Everybody you're going to talk to is very knowledgeable. And customer service is you know job number one. Wonderful folks. My good friends, uh, Josh and RJ. I love those guys. They really have help take the homebrew scene in the Reno metro area up, I think, you know, with, with their quality and knowledge. And uh, they're good sponsors here for us as well. So if you get a chance, check out brewchatter.com. They can ship stuff to you. You can call them up for advice. You can email them, whatever, good people. And if you happen to be in Reno, Go out to Sparks, go buy uh, Brew Chatter, go buy Brew Chatter. Then you're close to uh, uh, Lead Dog and Revision is right there. And uh, there's a couple other great, great breweries right right in the area. Bunch of great breweries in in Reno. Check them out. Uh, And they have a little bar in their their homebrew shop there where they usually have like five local beers on that are great, you know, that they've personally vouch for so you go in you can have some great beers and enjoy yourself while you shop around and uh, learn about uh you know various things about uh brewing at brew chatter so check them out brewchatter.com let's take a, another short break when we come back i'll have more of your questions right after this Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. Let's see. Jason from Lincoln, California. He says, start me up. He says, hey, fellas, I hope all is well. I won't verbally blow you like most of your listeners do. (laughs) You're already well aware of the impact you've made on the homebrewing community. So here's my my question. I make starters for all of my brews. I've read many times that a starter is done within 24 to 36 hours and sometimes sooner. There are many times I'm looking for a starter that has been, I'm looking at a starter that has been on a stir plate for that amount of time or longer, 48 to 96 hours, and I can still see a lot of CO2 being produced. From my perspective, this is a sign that the yeast are still doing their thing, eating, multiplying, etc. Should one not wait until they see this type of activity dissipate to ensure maximum cell growth, no matter how long it's been? Maybe it's just residual gas at some point. I can tell you about residual gas. Maybe the agitation from the stir plate is making bubbles that just appear to be CO2. Some particulars. I use Mr. Malty to calculate my pitch rate. Starters are generally two vials into two to six liters of work, depending on OG and style. Starter is almost always made with DME. Use a stir plate. Uh, OG is approximately 1040. 
due to starter size and prefer to crash decant starter wort. Help, I heard this can help glycogen reserves too. Starter is generally done at room temperature. Uh, nutrient always used. Cover loosely with aluminum foil to try and allow some oxygen exchange. Growing 10 gallon batches, all grain. Maybe I'm going to run into this answer as I'm currently reading Kristen Jamel's yeast book. Thanks for your time. Below is a pick of my home brewer. Built the last spring, having a lot of fun with it. Jason, yes. So the you may see some activity. He was saying, from my perspective, since you see CO2 being produced, from my perspective, this is a sign that the yeast are still doing their thing, eating, multiplying, etc. Okay. They are eating. They're not multiplying at that point. The multiplying comes earlier on as they kind of adjust their environment and they start taking up and they start butting off daughter cells based on the existing situation, right? There comes a point where they stop multiplying and then all they're doing is just eating, right? It's at that point that you can, certain point in the eating that, and they're done multiplying, you crash cool, what the yeast producers do, they crash cool them at that point to maximize the glycogen reserves in the yeast. If you let them go all the way to the end and till everything's completely done and stops and it's sitting there and it's sitting warm, they are going to start using their glycogen reserves back up and you will have less glycogen reserves in the yeast. It's not that big a deal. If you're pitching it into a beer, really wouldn't worry about it that much. But it is one of the things that, you know, the yeast producers do do really well to uh, maximize the, the, the storage ability and the viability of the yeast when you go to pitch them. Because, again, the yeast producers, they're not going from a starter the next day into a beer. They're going from starter into, you know, packaging into, you know, sitting in their, their stock, getting shipped to the homebrew shop, you know, getting purchased by you, all that stuff. So they need the glycogen reserves. It's not as critical for a homebrewer. So, yeah, in 48 hours, it's done multiplying. Everything's done. It's probably pretty much done with fermenting, too, unless you pitched very small amount of viable yeast and you had a very large starter generally it should be done by then for sure it's taking 96 hours i mean you can ferment a full beer in 96 hours so um yeah generally i would i'd give it you know two days and you're done you know stop stop the stir plate you know, put it in the fridge let let the yeast settle out and then when when it's time to can off the liquid and then you've got your yeast that, that you're going to pitch one of the things that uh, travis does and i do is you know make the yeast ahead of time and then the morning of your brew day put some sterile wort in there and let the yeast get active and then when it's time to pitch into your beer it's already a little frothy and it's it's gotten a little bit of a head start Gets, gets cranking. I think you created and answered a question, which we're just saying, you know. And I don't know, it's been a while since I've read the yeast book. I'm, I'm not sure if that's even addressed in the yeast book. But the Mr. Multi-Calculator, um, and I don't know that any other addresses it as well, but you, you specifically state as we play with the slider, growth 
You know, are you looking at two X growth, three X growth, four X growth as we go, you know, ratio of yeast to starter. And so it makes me wonder if we target the lower ratios, would we make more, especially if we did it a week in advance, more potentially, I mean, because the higher the yeast ratio to work, the yeast is just going to run out. It can't run to the end because the end is already, you know, the end is near, it's already over. Um, so if you, if you, if you would approach a lower ratio, because you're a few days in advance, might you have a better yeast viability when it was time to pitch? Versus if you said, I'm going to take this one pouch and I'm going to multiply it X times, make the biggest starter I can out of this one pouch because that's all the homebrew shop had or I'm cheap because I'm cheap. So you forced the growth and you run it all the way to the end and you kind of tired out your starter before you even pitched it. Not, not considering like a little bit of a repitch of a word with some oxygen, some nutrient, pick it back up. So does that make an argument for making a lower ratio growth over a higher ratio growth? Or am I just way looking too far into it? Yeah. So the yeast will only do, you know, maybe a, a 4X or a 5X. If there's not enough wort there, then, you know, are you going real low gravity? You know, you've got a delicate yeast that you need to baby along. It's been carried around in a, in a backpack during the heat in England for, for a week or, or more, you know, then you kind of need to baby it along, you know, then you're not getting as much, you know, growth at that point. Um, the thing is, if you, if you make a much larger starter, you know, you can look at, you know, the, a five gallon batch of beer, you, if you're, if you're, you know, throwing a little bit of yeast in there, what happens? The yeast will multiply a bit, but they reach their limit of multiplying. And then they, uh, you know, just go into fermentation mode and then they will try and ferment out all the rest that, that is there and may not. So there's, there's still a limit. You can make a larger starter, you can make a higher gravity starter, but most of the time it won't do any good. Uh, you're just getting the multiplication that you get. So, you know, on a stir plate, you're going to get, you know, five, four, four times the amount of yeast, four or five times the amount of yeast, something like that. So just depend. Uh, let's see here. Tim writes, I'm a long time listener of the Brewing Network. I'm a home brewer and recently started working as an assistant brewer at a professional brewery in uh, Massachusetts. We are looking to get in touch with a uh, BJCP judge that can give us some constructive feedback. We would appreciate any contacts you may have. P.S. I basically owe my employment to the BN. Thank you for all your entertainment. Vast amounts of info. What would you do, Travis, if you were looking for feedback on a beer? Well, all right. So I threw it for a there. Sorry. If I was looking for feedback the way he was looking for feedback, I'd look for a homer group. Hmm. Because hopefully we'd have some judges in there or at least people with opinions on beer. Outside of that, as a pro, you stumped me. Because everybody wants to give their opinion when they don't think anyone's listening. Mm -hmm. And the second you're listening, people maybe don't want to give you their opinion so much. Um, so what's what's the solution to that? I'd pay the heck out of my bartender to, to lube everybody up and get their opinions. <laughs> so, yeah. Or send your beers in the competition. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But pros can't do that. I mean, as BJCP, they can do it for JBF and CBC. Oh, yeah. Well, there, there are commercial 
competitions and they tend to be at the state level. You guys uh, have the state fair, right? Yeah. Most, yeah. most uh, states will have commercial beer competition at their state fair or, or there's, there tends to be, you know, the guild will put some on and things mm-hmm. like that. And the great thing about, you know, competition entries is um, they are, you know, judge blind. So nobody knows that it's your beer. You don't have to worry that, uh, you know, Absolutely. And, and that way you get complete blind, you know, uh, feedback on it. And so I think that's the best way. That's because if you get a person to come in and, you know, taste your beer and, and tell you about it, you know, it's one person and they may have biases. Mm-hmm. They may be afraid to, you know, speak their mind. You know, I always, I'm always a little hesitant to say what I think about Sony's beer because honestly, it doesn't matter, you know, how good a brewer somebody is. There are always little things that could be better in most beers. Now, there are beers that are absolutely flawless and they're absolutely fantastic and we should appreciate them being such. But a lot of times there's a little tweak. It'd be like, yeah, it'd be nice if, you know, it was this way or that way. You know what, you know what I mean? So. I, I like the state level. It's uh, I think Texas only initiated it about two years ago, shamefully. And uh, uh, Tim asked this back in 2015 and he's in, was that Massachusetts? MA? Uh, yeah. So, um, Massachusetts, yeah. Yeah, you've got the you've got the wonderful experience of having lived in California specifically for the beer environment and the, and the state fair competitions and so forth. And yeah, I like I like that regional competition a whole lot more than national. Yeah, I, I think that's a great idea. I, I, absolutely. Yeah, that that that's what I would do. I would I would try uh, going with that. All right, one last quick break, and then we'll wrap up with your questions right after this. Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys. Brew strong. All right, we're back. Don't forget, if you're listening live, you can always ask uh, questions in the chat or you can mail them in. Brew strong at thebrewingnetwork.com. Those questions, I'm catching up. I swear I'm catching up. Plus, the new ones that come in, I'm, I'm tending to pick those off quicker. And then I'll throw in some of the old ones too, you know, to, to work on the backlog. But questions used to come in like, you know, hundreds a month and it was impossible to, wow. to keep up with them. So right. we got quite far behind. But I, I vowed at some point, I remember this, that I would answer all the questions. So that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> at some point i think here's what's going to happen you're going to see me all by myself drinking and you know it's gonna be like a 10-hour episode of me drinking and quickly rattling off answers i'll be there with you <laughs> i'll keep my mouth shut so it goes faster but i'll be there with you it'll, it'll be fun i don't know <laughs> i think uh i think we ought to do it although what would be even better is if we did on location Yes. I'll just print out like, you know, I'll get get myself like three reams of paper. I'll print all the questions 
put in a suitcase or a backpack. I'll go to, to various places and just pull out sheets and uh, start rattling off answers. Huh? Get a dot matrix with some continuous sheets and just oh. print it out. <laughs> uh, the old dot matrix and continuous sheets. I guarantee yes. people are oh. still using those. Oh, no. Dot, <laughs> dot matrix is, is a bulletproof, bulletproof. True. It's true. It didn't mess up near as much as inkjet did. Oh yeah, inkjets, inkjets terrible. They, they dry, dry up if you're not using them constantly. Uh, I love me an old dot matrix. Just the sound of them. <laughs> oh, of course. Before that, it was like uh, tap 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 tap, tap 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 tap. Then it then it. Oh, the wheel, Daisy, the Daisy wheel. Oh, the Daisy wheel. Oh yeah, that was one of the first printers I had because I I needed uh, I, I you know. I needed something more typed for my uh, my mm-hmm. my classes. So you change the wheel out to change the font. What? <laughs> yes, you did. Right. If you need, you know, it's smaller font. You you know, you you, you go oh. italics. You'd you know swap the wheel. So of the four people tuned in, how many of you think have ever experienced that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It depends <laughs> how old they are. Uh. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Okay. okay, let's get serious here. Come on. This is a December of 2022 question. I'll have you know, it's just a little over a year old. That's fresh. Yeah. Fresh yeah, in my is. book. Brett is asking about uh, the ideal gas law, Henry's law, Dalton's law. We should have done this when we were more sober, I think. Or younger or still in college. Take, take your pick. <laughs> Hi, Jamel, John, and other hosts, and other hosts as appropriate. Travis. As appropriate. Thank you. And Mr. As Appropriate. <laughs> if, I, if I understood correctly, some beer could use as much as 20 milligrams of oxygen per liter when pitching yeast. I wonder how this is achieved, given the limited dissolved oxygen saturation concentration of water and water-like liquids. Since I pressure ferment, I pressurize on temperature plays a big role in that too. Since I pressure ferment, I pressurize the fermenter with about eight PSI of pure oxygen rather than bubble pure oxygen through the wort. When equilibrium is reached, the wort should have about 17 milligrams per liter of DO. Is the is is there something wrong with this technique? Y'all need to proofread your questions here. Otherwise, or I should proofread them right in the missing letters. Before I read them, is there something wrong with this technique? I'm curious to learn how you added oxygen at Heretic and what DO concentrations could you achieve sustained? I add about 210 milligrams of oxygen to a five gallon batch, depending on starting DO. Regards, Brett. P.S. You and the Brewing Network have helped me make better beer and more knowledgeable. Thank you. I hope you're still doing the show five to seven years from now so you can get to my question. <laughs> Fair question. Fair statement, I mean. See? Can I ask you a question? Yes. Have you ever capped a fermenter and put a PSI of oxygen on it? Hmm. I have not. Okay, because that's, that's sort of the premise of this question, right? Have you? Is he? I know. Why do you not do that? I can, okay. I can tell you that is one way to do it. So at Heretic, we were dealing with fermenters that were 21, 21 and a half feet tall. And so you have some, you know, pile of, of wort there that you, you have some hydrostatic pressure that's going to help also dissolve some oxygen in there. But 
using a very fine centered stone in line as the wort is transferring from the whirlpool or the heat exchanger through to the fermenter. The 20 parts per million white labs had actually gone around and measured at various breweries the amount of dissolved oxygen that they were getting in their, their fermenters. And there was breweries getting, you know, 20 plus. There was brewers getting, you know, like four or six. Wow. Just depended on the technique and, and what was going on. So it is possible. And I think this is going back to, we did a show and talked about for at, at Heretic, we were using, we settled on Imperial's juice yeast for the hazies. And Imperial recommends high D, you know, 20 parts per million to help it ferment, which is interesting to me because, you know, you can end up with, you know, kind of a hot alcohol character, I think, if you use too much oxygen. But um, so, the the reason why you'd need that is because I'm assuming these yeasts were came from a kind of a British yeast strain, and a lot of those uh, were used. That's why they started doing the double drop and things like that to aerate the beer partway through to get it to attenuate out fully. And I think you're you're seeing the same thing. So I think you can put all in the beginning or you could, you know, fluff the beer afterwards and get, you know, more oxygen in later. Uh, it's mainly if you, if you're trying to do a bigger beer with a yeast like that, you need to ensure it has enough oxygen or it won't fully attenuate out was the issue. If you're doing something like, you know, your, your general pale ale strength stuff, uh, probably not as much of an issue. So, his method, I think, is I think is fine. I think part of what happens when you put oxygen in a in a fermenter. Let's say when I was home brewing, I'd use a glass carboy. I'd, I'd take a a wand with a centered stone on it down to the bottom of the fermenter, and I'd run it for, depending on what uh, I was doing, generally let's say a minute at uh, you know a liter a minute or a half a liter a minute, whatever it was, or two minutes at a half liter. And, you know, you kind of stir the wand around the bottom so you're getting an even dispersal from the bottom up. But part of what happens is I think you, you saturate the, the wort and oxygen comes out and fills the headspace. And then when you cap it, that oxygen stays in there and it does get absorbed by the, by the, the wort and taken up by the yeast. So that's in there as well. So it's going to depend on how much headspace you have. So when Brett pressurizes his fermenter with 8 PSI pure oxygen, it depends on how much headspace. So if he has, you know, 10 gallons of headspace for his five gallons of wort, and that's filled with pure oxygen and 8 PSI, that's a considerable amount of oxygen to add to the beer versus if he's got half gallon of headspace, right? So I think he would need to take that into account. And it's very difficult to know for sure how much DO you have without a, a meter to read it. What's important for homebrewers, unless they want to pony up and get a meter, 
actually the the parts per million meters are not that expensive these days you know look at me mr Moneybags. they're they, you know they run a, like you know under 200 bucks and you know some of you guys out there i know you're spending way more than that <laughs> you don't need a parts per billion meter you need a parts per million and that's that's not not terribly expensive and that's really the only way you're going to know your dissolved oxygen in your work but what's more important for home brewer is to be consistent in the air dosing of oxygen so you want to set yourself up with centered stone use the same stone every time use you know a regulator that will deliver a consistent flow you know half liter one liter whatever per minute and then also tie that into the amount of work that you have so if you're dealing with four gallons of work you would add less oxygen if you're doing five gallons of work you do more if you're doing 10 gallons versus five you would double it so so you have some consistency across flow time volume and if you do that and you take notes, if the beer turns out well, then you keep doing what you're doing. If the beer needs more oxygen, more adjustment, then you do that as needed. Try more oxygen. If the beer improves, okay, more oxygen was good. If the beer gets worse, maybe it's less oxygen. So that would that would be how you do it. All right. You created, you created two, I'm sorry, do you have to take a break? No. You created two questions with that. Question one was tying it back to the pro level. All us lowly homebrewers always think about the pro level, right? And um, your recommendation is uh, 1080 plus double oxygenate for regular, like 01 Chico. And two, maybe two, two separate doses, right? Yes, yeah, sorry, yes. Um, spread eight to eight to 20 hours apart. Were you able to do that on the pro level? Yes. Okay, because that was question one, because I, I know you. You oxygenate in, you know, in stream on your first oxygenation. Hmm. You go like to a stone on the side of the vessel for your second one. No, we'd leave the oh, equipment hooked yeah. up, so we okay. would be disconnecting things and reconnecting things for sanitary reasons. So everything yeah, gets, got hooked up from the very beginning. We'd run, you know, we'd heat it all up to sanitize everything, and then we do the oxygen on the first run, and then it stayed connected. We'd oxygenate again after about eight hours. And then after that, we could disconnect it and take it off. Second question I had, it's probably a whole discussion. You know, we have, uh, you know, you oxygenate your beer, you inoculate it with your yeast, and sometimes it kicks off fast, sometimes it kicks off 12 hours. And sometimes people are really excited because it kicked off fast. I'm like, well, maybe you had so little oxygen, so little yeast, it finishes growth cycle in two hours and bam, it kicks yes. off. Right. So that's a, yeah, I don't not think necessarily, I can not necessarily a good thing. Now we were talking yeah. earlier in the show about, you know, kind of, uh, getting your, your yeast active by adding some sterile wort at, you know, in the morning. And by the time you're, you got your wort ready, it's starting to foam that can help, you know, with things. But yeah, if you, if you put in a ton of oxygen, and uh you know the yeast will, will will keep taking it up instead of getting into fermentation mode so that can delay things so you know sometimes people focus too much on trying to accelerate one thing it's like well if a little bit's good more is better sometimes just doing the standard traditional way of brewing is absolutely the best 
Excellent. Yeah. So um, that answered the question in a nutshell. You know, when you're looking at that, especially when you're thinking, like, honestly, I don't know how much I'd have to over oxygenate or under oxygenate to taste a difference, but I can usually see a difference in the fermentation character. Mm -hmm. you know, you, like it won't ferment as fast or it will ferment faster, not just in kickoff, but finishing. Right. You know, based on my yeast health and how much I oxygenate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But um, I, I hope I never push it to the extremes where I can taste the effect, not just see that, you know, plus or minus half a day here and there. All right. Well, there you go. All right. Lots of good questions. Thank you, everybody who, who emailed your questions in to BrewStrong at thebrewingnetwork.com. Thanks, uh, Patrick, for uh, asking a question in the chat. If you're listening live, you can stay tuned. We're going to take a, a quick pee break and restock our beers. And then we'll have a whole nother episode for you coming up here right after this. And then uh, make sure that you check out all our fine sponsors, especially our good friends at Blickman Engineering. Check them out, BlickmanEngineering.com. They've been paying for this show for 15, 16 years, so you don't have to. So the least you can do is check out their website, maybe send a nice email to John Blickman. Uh, feedback at, at BlickmanEngineering.com and tell them uh, how much you appreciate it. And our friends, uh, Josh and RJ at Brew Chatter, check them out. I go up to Reno as often as I can. And when I do, I go and hang out with those guys. It's a, it's a load of fun. Check them out, BrewChatter.com. Till then, everybody, brew strong. Brew strong. <laughs>